It's good to see you here. If you, if you have a Bible or a device with your Bible on it, turn to the book of Job. If you don't, that's okay. I, I don't always provide our text on the screen because I like us to actually have our Bibles in hand. But these are unusual days, and everything that we're used to doing has been changed. So the text is on the screen. It will be probably in a in a, the size of the font will be maybe challenging to read for some of you, but I will read it for us, and uh, so you, you'll hear it as well. Job chapter 26, being the people of God in the pandemic. We concluded uh, last week our reflection on how, we, how do we read and understand the Older Testament And we've come now to the book of Job. Job chapter 26, and we're looking at verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to to move into chapter 27, verses 1 to 6. All right, Job 26, 1 to 3, and Job 27, 1 to 6. Now, obviously, we're not looking at the whole book of Job. Uh, The the story of Job in its entirety is a, a wonderful study and, uh, and I encourage you in that. Job 26, 1 to 3, and Job 27, 1 to 6. Job is interacting with his friends in this passage that we're going to read. And as we read it together, I want you to think a tone of sarcasm because that's how Job is speaking in these words, all right? Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. Oh, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. And Job again took up his discourse. This is chapter 27 now. And said, as God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So, how do we read the Older Testament? In order to properly understand it, but also to properly Uh, take it into our lives and apply it and live it today. And so we've considered some of the Psalms together last week and the prophets and lamentations. We reflected on Jeremiah. And now we face this dark mountain looming behind all of those, and it's called the book of Job. Beloved, whenever anyone tells you that this pandemic means that God is calling people, perhaps even you, to repent, tell them to read the book of Job. 
the whole point of Job is that that is not the point. In Job's small-minded, legalistic comforters, his fortune-cookie theology friends that were speaking to him, and they tell him just that. They tell him it's all about his sin. There must be some sin, Job, in your life, and that's why. And you recall last week we looked at this whole idea of retribution that was a common belief in the ancient world that if, if there was something wrong in my life, it must be because, of course, the prophet Elijah puts that to rest for us, and we looked at that last week. But this is what Job's friends were doing as well. They are absolutely clear that God must be punishing Job for some secret misbehavior, some hidden sin in his life. And Job dismisses them with the dripping sarcasm and scorn that I told you to keep in mind as we read this text at hand. He mocks them. He mocks them for their lack of help and persuasiveness in chapter 26, verses 2 and 3. And he is equally clear that if that is so, then God is being unjust. Wow. Now the reader, you and I, who understand Job, being in on the secret from the start, knows that both are wrong. Both Job's friends and Job himself. But that the comforters, Job's friends, are a whole lot more wrong than Job. After Job rebukes his friends, they do not speak again. We may forget about them in the story. Small-minded moral scrupulousness, this moral exacting that they were carrying out with Job, is driven from the field of the story. It's no adequate way to live, and it has no place in the story. Job is not overly scrupulous. He's not one who is acting in strict rule-keeping regarding his situation and uh, in regards to what is considered proper and right. He's not being stodgy that way and, and prudish at all. He is, however, a man of virtue and integrity, judged by any available standard. That is clear. He has been so from the first verse of Job. If you go back to the beginning of the story, you'll see that that is made clear there. And no evidence has been brought against him. Now we find ourselves in chapter 26 and 27. We've skipped a whole lot because for sake of time, but even here, now where we are in the story, no evidence has been brought against him. He is as good here in our passage as the narrator announced him to be in chapter 1. Job knows his virtue. So he vows an oath of defiance and self-confidence. Chapter 27, 2-4, we read together. The falsehood 
that he references in our passage, the falsehood that he will not speak, is that which denies the fact that he is virtuous. He will not falsely present himself, he's saying. He will not knuckle under. He will not commit perjury against himself. And then he swears a second sweeping oath concerning his friends. He says, I will not be talked out of what I know. I will not engage in submission on false grounds. Not just to accommodate religious convention. I will not do it. You know, if Job were not so good, he'd be arrogant. And perhaps even self-righteous. But the fact is, Job is good. He is theologically good. He's discerning. He's righteous and responsible. He knows what serious theology is all about. He understands what healthy humanness costs. He is an embodiment of integrity, of wholeness, and of completeness. He has lived a responsible, caring, compassionate, generous life. Not many of us would ever be cast in the role of Job. I know I certainly wouldn't ever be. He is nonetheless a model for us of what it looks like to have it right with God and right with our neighbor. We too are created for caring, responsible lives of integrity, loving God and loving our neighbors. So to read Job properly and to reflect on Job properly, we discover quite a different battle is going on here than what we might assume. The book of Job rattles the cages of our easygoing, self-righteous piety. It reminds us that there are indeed more things in heaven and earth, more mysterious pains and puzzles in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our own philosophy, even our Christian philosophy. The book of Job doesn't really have a resolution. If you've read the story, you know that. It doesn't really have a resolution, at least not a satisfactory one. Not one according to our terms. It's another one of those stories where we often read it and think, what's with that? Doesn't make sense to me. Well, let's go on to the next It provides no satisfactory resolution, particularly according to our terms. There is a short, happy ending, but it's only partially happy. Job gets more sons and daughters to replace the ones he lost. But does that make it all right? God has revealed his power and might to Job, and Job realizes that even with his own goodness and integrity, he can't compete, and that how he thought about God was in need of a radical overhaul. But does even that make it all right? Perhaps part of the point of the book of Job 
is precisely its unresolved nature. Sermons have been preached and whole books have been written on the ways in which the story of Jesus provides a kind of resolution for Job. Well, maybe. The book of Job must first, however, be considered on its own, within its own cultural context, according to the author's immediate intentions. Job longs for someone to stand in the middle, an advocate. He longs for someone to stand between him and God and to represent him so that the case, his case, could be heard. In fact, the, 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 the whole ethos of the story of Job is kind of like a courtroom legal scene. He's looking for someone so that both sides of the story could be represented. And there's no umpire between us, he complains in chapter 9 and verse 33. There's no umpire between us who might lay his hand on us both. And he questions whether mortals can live again after they die in chapter 14, verse 14. He longs for ultimate justice, a putting right of things which goes well beyond what this life seems to afford us. We can relate with the story of Job. It's been said that the story of Job actually teaches us how to suffer and to suffer properly because suffering is very much a part of this life. And these days that we've been living in have been no exception, of course, to that. They've been a very pronounced illustration of it. All of these things are spoken of in the New Testament in connection with what the same God, Israel's God, has done and will do through Jesus. Jesus stands between God and humankind. He is the great advocate. He has shown the way through death to renewed life. He has put all things right and will work that out in the end Yet, this is anything but straightforward. The book of Job, beloved, is so necessary in our lives. The story of Job is, is a standing reminder for us that the Old Testament operates on at least two quite different levels. First, there is the story of Israel or rather God and Israel, and this is the covenantal story. It's the narrative of how the Creator God called a people to be His partner in rescuing the human race and restoring creation. It tells how that people themselves, carriers of the disease that had infected the whole human race, the proton virus called idolatry, individualism, injustice, which is killing us all, how that people themselves had to go into the darkness of exile so that somehow new life might emerge on the other side. And, and this whole story seen with hindsight by the followers of Jesus 
has its own dynamic. Many Jews in Jesus' day were very much aware of the great story of God and Israel in terms of the covenant in Deuteronomy 27 to 32, which promised blessing for obedience and curses, ultimately exile for disobedience, followed in the end by restoration when Israel finally repented and returned to God. This story is picked up in the great prayer of Daniel 9. The extraordinary poem that we know as Isaiah 40 to 55. All of these passages tie together. They tell the same story of God's healing, rescue, restoration, and new creation following after a time not only of judgment, but even despair. Viewed from the perspective of a first century Jew, these scriptural traditions all belonged together. Jesus and his first followers drew liberally on the whole story to explain what was currently happening in their day. Just as we're seeking to draw from the whole story now to understand what's happening in our day. First, we must understand how they drew upon it in order to understand what was going on in their day. So, with, with that storyline, alongside it, this Israel and God story, there also runs a deeper story of the good creation and the dark power that from the start has tried to destroy God's good handiwork. And, and I do not and we cannot claim to completely understand that dark power. Perhaps we're not meant to, but we'll consider that more later on in these reflections. For now, we are simply to know that when we are caught up in awful circumstances like the circumstances we have been experiencing in these months. Circumstances like apparent gross injustices, terrible plagues and pandemics, or when we are falsely accused of wicked things of which we are innocent, like Job. Suffering strange sicknesses with no apparent reason, let alone cure. At these points, hear this now, at these points, we are to, as an expression of worship, as the people of God, lament. Lament. Now, rationalists, including Christian rationalists, always want explanations. We want it explained. Please explain to me what's going on and why. But supposing there isn't one. That's what Job had to learn. 
Supposing real human wisdom doesn't mean being able to string together some dodgy speculations and say, so that's all there is to it then. Yeah? What if after all there are moments such as the poet T.S. Eliot recognized in the early 1940s during World War II when the only advice is to wait without hope because we'd be hoping for the wrong thing? Romantics, including Christian romantics, always want to be given a sigh of relief. But again, perhaps what we need more than either is to recover the biblical tradition, the lost biblical tradition of lament. Lament is what happens when people wait on God and ask why. And they don't get an answer. Lament is where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and our lives and our failings, and we look more broadly at the suffering of the world. It's bad enough facing a pandemic in New York City, or London, or Toronto, or Vancouver. What about a crowded refugee camp on a Greek island? What about Yemen? What about Gaza or the South Sudan? In lament, we are to pour out our grief and our complaint to God. Not to one another. To God. We are to state the case. We are to leave it with God. This is what we see transpiring in the story of Job. This is how the Psalms inform us and resource us. This is what Job did. You see, the point of lament woven thus into the fabric of the biblical tradition is not just that it's, a, that it, it's an outlet for our frustration and our sorrow and our loneliness and our sheer inability to understand what in the world is happening and why. It's not just that. The mystery of the biblical story, please hear this, is that God also laments. His heart also breaks with ours. Some Christians like to think of God as above all that. Knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles of his world. But do you know what rattles that for me as I, as, as I understand the Scriptures? That's not the biblical perspective we're given. I mean, think about it. Consider God was grieved to his heart, Genesis declares, over the violent wickedness of his human creatures. He was devastated when his own bride, the people of his creation, the people of Israel, the people he had called, 
when they turned away from him. And when God came back to his people in person, the story of Jesus is meaningless unless that's what it's about. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. St. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning within us as we ourselves groan within the pain of the whole creation. Romans 8, 26 and 27. The ancient doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to recognize the one God in the tears of Jesus and the anguish of the Spirit. Vivid pictures here of a God who laments. But more on these things later. For now, we, like Job, are asked by God, as God asks Job in chapter 38 and verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, we may answer, like Adam, hidden in our fearful disobedience, or we may answer like Job, hiding in our fearful obedience and goodness and integrity. Perhaps at praise, lamenting, being freed, healed, and astonished by a very different understanding of life, true life, and who God is. God Himself declares at the end of Job's story, that Job has told the truth. Chapter 42 and verse 8. You see, Job has learned through his experience how to properly think about his life with all of its rough realities and its pervasive paradox. Job has learned how to properly think about himself that his own goodness is not enough. Our own moral virtue, beloved, will never suffice to save us. A lot of good people in this room. But our own goodness will never suffice to save us. Job learned this. Our own moral virtue will never suffice you see, Job has moved from holding on to his own moral virtue and integrity to instead yielding in awe and wonder and amazement to God alone in lament and in praise and in doxology, giving glory to Him. Job has learned how to properly think about God when life falls apart. This is what we can learn from Job, the story. How are we to think about God when we are wrecked? How are we to think about God when life falls apart? God has been there for Job all along. But here's the thing. God refuses to engage Job on Job's terms. Job has learned how to trust God 
on God's terms. No strings attached. The only way we can truly approach God is on His terms, not ours. Job has learned this. He has taken hold of the fact that God is just and God is right, even though his own experience and his own misery seem to deny it, seem to speak other than, seem to contradict that. He has learned that God is still good and just. And in all of this, in all of these things that we've just laid out on the table, we, you and I, as the people of God, are invited to the same in these days. You see, it's really not a part of the Christian vocation then to be able to explain what's happening and why. To always have an explanation, to always have an answer, and to always know why. That's not really part of our vocation as Christ followers. In fact, it is a part of the vocation of a Christ follower not to be able to explain and to lament instead. Our vocational calling as the people of God, as Christ followers, is to lament. Now watch this. Don't, don't sign off on me. Don't check out. Watch this. As the Spirit of God laments within us, so we become, even in our self-isolation, even in our physical distancing, as the Spirit of God laments within us, so we become the living temples of God where the presence and the healing love of God can dwell. And out of that place, that place of being, there can emerge new possibilities, new acts of kindness, new scientific understanding, new perspectives, New hope, new wisdom for our leaders. Now there's a thought. Jesus not only drew on this story of Job, he lived it. He died under it himself. And this brings us then to the story of Jesus himself. And we'll begin to look at that together next time.